Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you, as always, for listening. Before we begin this week's episode, I'd like to make a couple of announcements first. As you may or may not be aware, this show doesn't currently return a profit. In fact, it's a giant money sink for me. Anyway, I was doing some cleaning around my apartment and realized that I have a plethora of books that I don't think I'll have any use for in the future. So, to clear up some space around here and to hopefully recoup some of my financial losses, I've decided to open up an eBay store where I've listed a few dozen books for sale. I only chose eBay because it's the only platform I was familiar with that didn't charge a monthly fee. If any of you know of a better platform by which I could sell my used books online, please feel free to contact me. So, if you like the show and would like to contribute to help keep it going, and you're interested in a few old books that I don't have any use for, please feel free to visit my eBay store and buy some of them off of me. Another way that you can contribute to the show financially is by subscribing to the Patreon. For just $5 a month, you can gain access to monthly bonus content, as well as a whole backlog of previous content. December's bonus episode will be a reading of Marx and Lenin's writings on the Paris Commune. It's a rather long one, but if you enjoyed the series on the Paris Commune I did last season, you'll likely find this one to be rather interesting. I'd also like to take this opportunity to keep you updated on where the rest of the season of this podcast is going. Rest assured, the entire season will not just consist of Haitian Revolution content. I will finish this series on Part 9, which I plan to release by December 25th. After that point, I will have four more series for this season, which are Joan of Arc, the Congo Free State, Julian the Apostate, and Emperor Puyi, in that order. Anyway, without further ado, let's get on with the show. In the last episode of our series on the Haitian Revolution, we witnessed the end of the war that had ravaged Saint-Domingue for the better half of a decade. Thanks to the combined efforts of Generals Toussaint Louverture in the north and André Rigaud in the south, forces loyal to the French Republic drove out the last of the British expeditionary forces in mid-1798. It was around this time that General Edouville entered the picture. Gabriel Comte Edouville was an accomplished general in the French army, who had been dispatched by the Directory, the French Republic's new executive body, to reassert their authority in the colony. This would necessarily involve wrestling political power away from Toussaint and Rigaud. But the French government was far more afraid of Toussaint and the ex-slaves than they were of Rigaud and the free people of color. So, Edouville sought to turn Rigaud and Toussaint against each other, to this end, he offered Rigaud an official pardon from the French government if he were to help him defeat Toussaint. Rigaud considered Edouville's proposition, but did not act on it immediately. He and Toussaint had been allies in the struggle against the British for the better part of five years. Toussaint's expulsion of General Edouville in October 1798 changed the whole political equation. Having defied the authority of the Metropole yet again, Toussaint's fear was that the French would return to Saint-Domingue, this time with an army and that they would ally with the free people of color against him. This could not come to pass. Toussaint realized that he had to defeat Rigaud and overthrow his regime in the south. Throughout late 1798 and early 1799, Toussaint and Rigaud waged a war of rhetoric against one another. Toussaint accused Rigaud and the free people of color of racism. They did not wish to accept his authority because he was a black man, Toussaint claimed. As evidence of their prejudices, Toussaint pointed to the example of the Swiss, the army of ex-slaves and maroons that helped the free people of color to victory in the early days of the revolution, only to be sold out by their erstwhile allies and turned into the white authorities. Rigaud vehemently denied these claims. 
he stated that his opposition to Toussaint was not racial in nature, but strictly political. To fend off these charges, Rigaud pointed out that he was born to a black mother, just as Toussaint was. Quote, and is there, in any case, such a difference between Toussaint's color and my own? I am too strongly penetrated by the rights of man to believe that one color is superior to another. I know a man only as a man. End quote. Rigaud went on to claim that he had suffered abuses at Toussaint's hand. Quote, I have chiefs, but no master, and never did an irritated and foul-mouthed master treat his slave in a manner as atrocious as I have been treated by Toussaint. End quote. Both Toussaint and Rigaud claimed to be the true representatives of Republican authority in the colony, and each accused the other of rebelling against it. Rigaud pointed to Toussaint's friendly dealings with the British as proof that he was a secret enemy of liberty, and that he would sell Saint-Domingue out to the British, who would then reimpose slavery and discrimination. Toussaint, on the other hand, essentially claimed the same thing about Rigaud. He pointed out the conditions of the laborers in the areas under Rigaud's jurisdiction, as proof that Rigaud was actually the one who wanted to reinstate slavery. So, it would seem that there was no real ideological or practical divide between Toussaint and Rigaud. Both men essentially had the same vision for Saint-Domingue, and both remained ever loyal to the Republic. So, how can the conflict between the two be explained? Some have interpreted the War of Knives, as it is known to history, as a race war, blacks versus free people of color. The reality of the situation is far more nuanced. Given that class lines in Saint-Domingue were drawn so closely to racial ones, historian Carolyn Fick views the conflict as being just as much as a class war as it was a race war, which pitted the propertied free people of color against the black laboring masses. Two said black laboring masses, Toussaint was the embodiment of their freedom, and they had been made to fear Rigaud and his ambitions. Rigaud, meanwhile, represented the interest of the propertied free people of color. Having gained much over the course of these revolutionary years, and having consolidated their gains in the South, they felt like Toussaint threatened to destroy what they had created, and so they went to war. Furthermore, the geopolitical implications of this war are worth mentioning. Because this war pitted French interests against those of Britain and the United States, the British and the Americans, having concluded secret commercial treaties with Toussaint, and hoping that he might be persuaded to declare Saint-Domingue completely independent of France, stake their hopes on Toussaint's victory. France, on the other hand, had grown wary of Toussaint's ambitions and wished to see him deposed. They were therefore more likely to support Rigaud, whom they believed to be more loyal to the Republic. Rigaud made the first move. On June 18, 1799, 4,000 soldiers loyal to Rigaud simultaneously attacked the towns of Petit Goave and Grand Goave. These were a pair of port cities on the northern coast of the southern peninsula. They were garrisoned by forces loyal to Toussaint, but Aduville, in his final missive to Rigaud, confirmed that these towns, simply by virtue of their location, should lay under his jurisdiction, not Toussaint's. At first, the advantage lay with the free people of color. Their soldiers, described by their contemporaries as being the best in the colony, were quite well-paid, well-equipped, and well-trained. Their morale in these early days was quite high, and historian C.L.R. James wrote that they, quote, fought like tigers, end quote. However, they lacked numbers. Toussaint's army was upwards of 45,000 strong, compared to Rigaud's 15,000. Rigaud was counting on inciting rebellion against Toussaint to reduce his numbers and divide his efforts. Initially, this strategy seemed to be working. 
Mergo's audacious attack on Petit and Grand Goave triggered the defection of General Alexandre Petion and his men from Toussaint. It also incited a series of rebellions of free people of color in the north that Toussaint had to scramble to suppress. It got to the point where Toussaint was the target of two attempted assassinations. However, he emerged completely unscathed from both. During the first attempt, a bullet passed through Toussaint's hat, but his personal physician was killed. The second time, a carriage that the would-be assassin suspected Toussaint to be riding in was riddled with bullets, killing his coachman. Luckily for Toussaint, that day he had opted to ride behind his carriage on a horseback. Toussaint responded to this turn of events with uncharacteristic brutality. Anyone even suspected of conspiring against him was summarily executed, and any free person of color was a suspect. And while Toussaint publicly disavowed the excesses of his men, some historians suspect that he did indeed order these executions, only to publicly disavow them later, so as to improve his public image. In the interest of fairness, however, Rigaud also carried out his own campaign of terror against the colony's remaining whites, and free people of color suspected of treason, mass summary executions, deportations, etc. Toussaint turned to his American allies for assistance in his fight against Rigaud. He would once more write to American President John Adams, accusing Rigaud of supporting French privateers in the Atlantic and requesting American naval support. The United States, keen as it was to protect its commercial interests and thereby keen to see Toussaint victorious, were more than eager to comply, and so they sent ships out to enforce a blockade of Saint-Domingue's southern ports. Once this had been accomplished, and once Toussaint had quelled all the uprisings in his own territory, he ordered his army to march into the south. Mergot attempted to offset Toussaint's numerical advantage by rallying ex-slave plantation laborers to his banner. He had his agents spread rumors across the plantations that Toussaint was in league with the British and was plotting to reinstate slavery. But these former slaves did not heed Rigaud's call to arms. They had suffered for years under his labor regime, which to them was only a slight improvement over the conditions of slavery. They refused to fight and die for him and his regime. Toussaint's army steadily advanced southwards, in two columns, each led by one of his most trusted generals, Jean-Jacques Dessalines and Henri Christophe. The fighting was absolutely brutal. A quote from historian Laurent Dubois, quote, The leaders on both sides demonized their enemies, and the fighting descended into a delirium in which neither side showed any mercy. It never entered anyone's mind to take prisoners. End quote. As Virgo's forces were pushed steadily backwards, they engaged in scorched earth tactics as they retreated, turning the south into a desert of fire. By mid-November 1799, Toussaint's advance into the south had been halted at the critical port town of Jacmel. Rigaud's forces there, under the command of Alexandre Petion, managed to hold the city for five months against the forces under Dessalines on the ground, and a blockade by the U.S. Navy on the sea. Completely cut off from their supply lines, the defenders of Jacmel were reduced to eating leather and grass after some time. Crucially, Rigaud made no great effort to come to their rescue. He was biding his time at Le Quay, evidently awaiting reinforcements from France that would never come. Finally, on the night of March 11, 1800, Petion's starving soldiers, armed with machetes, quite literally hacked their way through Dessalines' lines and beat a retreat southwards. Jacmel, which had come to become a symbol of mulatto resistance, had fallen at last. The remnants of Rigaud's army were thrown into disarray. They fought desperately to the last men against Dessalines' continually advancing forces. In June 1800, a ship arrived in Le Cap bearing news from France. 
The Directory had been overthrown and replaced by a new executive body known as the Consulate. Officially, executive power was split between three consuls, but the most powerful among them was First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was, at this time, a 31-year-old army officer who had won fame leading the armies of the Republic on their campaigns in Italy and later in Egypt. He used this fame to catapult himself to the heights of power, and he was now the de facto head of the French state. Napoleon was already well aware of Toussaint Louverture. Napoleon was distrustful of Toussaint, but he was too busy with European affairs, both domestic and international, to turn his attention to the Caribbean. So for the time being, Napoleon issued a series of proclamations regarding affairs on Saint-Domingue. The first of these confirmed the position of Toussaint as commander-in-chief and governor of Saint-Domingue. Already in its final days, this proclamation struck the final blow to Rigaud's cause, predicated as it was on the assertion that Toussaint was a traitor, and that Rigaud was the true representative of the Republic. Feeling much more secure in his position, Toussaint declared a general amnesty for any who surrendered to him. He even reached out to Rigaud himself, offering to meet him in person. Rigaud declined, and, in late July, he, along with his family, fled Saint-Domingue. Toussaint had emerged from the War of the Knives victorious, but the worst of the brutality was yet to come. The southern province remained rife with Rigaud's partisans. What followed in the weeks following Rigaud's departure were vicious reprisals carried out by Toussaint's men against prisoners of war. This was in spite of the general amnesty proclaimed by Toussaint upon his entry into Rigaud's capital of Lequet. Some placed the blame for these atrocities squarely on Jean-Jacques Dessalines, and while it is true that the men directly under his command were responsible for the bulk of these killings, some historians suspect that Toussaint had privately ordered Dessalines and his other officers to carry out these executions so he could once again publicly deny knowledge of such actions. One anecdote recalls Toussaint reprimanding Dessalines for being overzealous in carrying out his orders, saying, quote, I told you to prune the tree, not to uproot it, end quote. To which Dessalines is said to have replied, quote, What do you want? When it rains, everyone outside gets wet, end quote. Toussaint would have had ample cause to order the purge of Rigaud's supporters in the South, especially those in the army. C.L.R. James wrote, quote, A great bitterness against Toussaint and Dessalines smoldered in the hearts of mulattoes in the South. End quote. Toussaint had to secure his southern flank against a potential French expeditionary force, and so the South had to be purged of the fifth column. It was this exact same thought process that motivated Toussaint to invade and occupy Spanish San Domingo. Officially, Spain had ceded their half of the island to France in the 1795 Treaty of Basel. However, seeing as how French Saint-Domingue was already embroiled in a multifaceted internecine conflict at the time, the French were hardly in a position to actually take over the formerly Spanish colony. Now that Toussaint had consolidated his control over French Saint-Domingue, he had ambitions to occupy the whole of the island of Hispaniola, so as to secure his position against a potential French invasion. After all, back in 1796, Edouville had opted to land at the port of Santo Domingo so as to avoid seeing Toussaint in person. Toussaint had the perfect pretext to take over Spanish Santo Domingo. He claimed that the Spanish, who had been left in charge of the colony's administration, were kidnapping French citizens and selling them off into slavery. He asked Philippe Rose Rome de Saint Laurent for permission to annex the colony. Rouen was the metropolitan official whose duty was to keep tabs on Toussaint's activity 
and to report it back to the government in Paris. In other words, since Edouville's deposition, Rome had been the last vestige of metropolitan authority in Saint-Domingue, the last check on Toussaint's power. But Rome's power over Toussaint was nominal at best. Realistically, if he wanted to, Toussaint could have just marched into Santo Domingo regardless, but he took care to get the consul's approval for this action. But Rome would not grant it. His orders from Napoleon were clear. Santo Domingo was to be left alone. In response, Toussaint had his lieutenant and nephew Moise mobilize an angry mob of plantation laborers to converge on Le Cap, threatening to sack the town if Rome did not comply. For two weeks, a tense standoff ensued as Rome obstinately refused to approve Toussaint's action, and Le Cap remained in danger of destruction. Eventually, Toussaint met with Rome himself and issued him a threat. If he did not grant his official approval to the invasion of Santo Domingo, Toussaint would regardless invade the former Spanish colony with fire and sword in hand. It would be the end of the whites in that colony, he told Rome. The threats worked, and Rome reluctantly signed off on the invasion of Santo Domingo, although he wrote secretly to the Spanish governor entreating him not to surrender to Toussaint's forces. The letter would have little effect. In late December 1799, Toussaint's forces, led by his lieutenant and adoptive nephew Moise, crossed the border into Spanish territory. The remaining Spanish garrisons of Santo Domingo were quickly routed, and the governor formally surrendered on January 21st of the following year. Toussaint pursued a policy of leniency towards the new territory that he had conquered, offering full amnesty to the people of Spanish Santo Domingo. As we have already discussed at length, Toussaint sought to reestablish the plantation economy of Saint-Domingue. His unofficial model was something to the effect of, the ultimate guarantee of freedom is the prosperity of agriculture. He knew that if France did not receive the exports of sugar, coffee, and other agricultural goods from Saint-Domingue that it was accustomed to, it would be very much in their interest to reestablish slavery. He simply could not conceive of an economic order built on anything other than plantation agriculture. Toussaint was faced with the unenviable task of transforming a vast population of former slaves into a new population of free, self-motivated cultivators. The problem was that, obviously, the former slaves had no desire to return to the physically dangerous, back-breaking work that they had endured under the old regime. Toussaint would have to coerce them in getting back to work. Ever since he emerged as an independent political force in 1794, Toussaint had constantly enforced limitations on the freedom of former slaves. But now, in 1800, he took things a step further. On October 12, 1800, he issued a decree on labor, which I will now read in full. Quote, Article 1. All overseers, drivers, and field negroes are bound to observe, with exactness, submission, and obedience, their duty in the same manner as soldiers. Article 2. All overseers, drivers, and field negroes, who will not perform with assiduity the duties required of them, shall be arrested and punished as severely as soldiers deviating from their duty. Article 3. All field negroes, men and women, now in a state of idleness, living in towns, villages, or on other plantations to which they do not belong, with an intention to evade work, even those of both sexes who have not been employed in field labor since the revolution are required to immediately return to their respective plantations. All those who shall be found in contravention hereto shall be instantly arrested. 
and, if they are found guilty, they shall be drafted into one of the regiments of the army. Liberty cannot exist without industry. End quote. What Toussaint sought to do by this decree was to establish military discipline in the agricultural sector. This was far more extreme than the contract system devised by Santhanax and Aduville that had prompted such demonstrations of civil resistance. All laborers were now bound, immutably and permanently, to their plantations, and subjected to the harshest penalties for disobedience. The labor policy advanced by Toussaint was eerily reminiscent of slavery, but it was different in a few crucial aspects. First and foremost, laborers were compensated for their labor. Secondly, there was a zero-tolerance policy for the use of corporal punishment. When Toussaint had learned that Dessalines had authorized the use of the whip on his plantations, he threatened to strip him of his command. Still, Toussaint was disappointed to learn that many, including the old slave masters, had interpreted his labor decree as proof of his ultimate intention to reinstate slavery. A quote from historian Laurent Dubois, quote, The leader of Saint-Domingue was walking a thin line, seeking to contain simultaneously the aspirations of ex-masters for a return to the old order, and the aspirations of ex-slaves for a fuller freedom. End quote. As of early 1800, Toussaint Louverture was nearing the zenith of his power. He had conquered the whole of the island of Hispaniola in a matter of less than a decade. Of this accomplishment, he said the following, quote, I found the colony dismembered, ruined, overrun by bandits of Jean-Francois and of the Spanish and by the English, who fought over the bits. It is today purged of its enemies, quiet, pacified, and advances towards its complete restoration. I have taken flight with the eagles, but I have to be careful as I come back to earth. End quote. At this juncture, there remained only one grave threat to the peace and prosperity of Saint-Domingue, and ironically enough, that threat was France under First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte. The consulate's colonial ministry was staffed by men who, at the outset of the revolution, had been defenders of slavery and opponents of equal rights. However, so long as France remained at war with Britain, Saint-Domingue was relatively safe, but the threat of peace loomed larger and larger by the day, and, when peace came, France would inevitably attempt to reassert its control over the colony. The ship which came to Le Cap in June of 1800, bearing the decree cementing Toussaint's rule over Saint-Domingue, came with further decrees from the metropole. Per the new constitution of the French Republic, the colonies would no longer have representation in France's national legislature, but instead the colonies would be governed according to special laws. What exactly this vague phrase, special laws, entailed was not enumerated in the new constitution, but it was clear that the consulate was seeking to rein in the autonomy of the colonies that they had enjoyed under previous regimes. Toussaint, likely realizing this, sought to solidify his control over the colony. To this end, in 1801, he promulgated a constitution for Saint-Domingue. In March, elections were held to select representatives to form a constituent assembly. The constitution was finished in May and was officially promulgated in July. The first article, mirroring the language of Napoleon's decree, stated that Saint-Domingue, in its entirety, formed a single colony that formed a part of the French Empire, but was subject to special laws. Essentially a unilateral declaration of colonial autonomy, 
The next four articles affirmed the abolition of slavery and the commitment of Toussaint to an egalitarian, harmonious, and multiracial society. Setting aside the radical nature of its first five articles, the Constitution of 1801 is described as being a fundamentally conservative document. The articles pertaining to religion, social customs, agriculture, and trade exemplify this. For instance, the Constitution stipulated that Roman Catholicism, as practiced in Europe, was to be the only religion allowed to be publicly practiced in Saint-Domingue. This was done in an explicit effort to suppress voodoo, the amalgamation of Catholicism and beliefs and practices from African religions that was observed by most ex-slaves and was a centrifugal force in the initial slave revolt. Toussaint considered voodoo to be a subversive influence that, quote, spread principles that were absolutely contrary to those of the friends of their country, end quote. The Constitution also upheld the institution of marriage and prohibited divorce in an effort to, quote, spread and maintain social virtue and to encourage and strengthen family ties, end quote. The Constitution also dealt with agriculture in familial and patriarchal terms, quote, the plantation is the peaceful refuge of an active and steadfast family of which the landowner necessarily acts as the father. Each agricultural worker and artisan is a member of the family and shares in its revenues. Any change of domicile by an agricultural worker brings about the ruin of agriculture. End quote. Essentially, this article confirmed Toussaint's labor decree of 1800. The Constitution of 1801 was first and foremost a social contract for Saint-Domingue, but it was a document of powerful contradictions. At the same time, it upheld the projects of abolition and emancipation and ostensibly sought to create a society where the values of liberty, equality, and fraternity were shared by all. As such, it was a powerful refutation of slavery and of the old order. At the same time, however, it delegated burdensome responsibilities onto the former slaves based entirely on their previous status of slavery. To defend the freedom that they had won, they had to surrender a degree of their freedom to the new order. The remainder of the Constitution of 1801 made provisions for the new administrative structure of this new order. The power of the state was vested in one man, Toussaint Louverture. In fact, the Constitution declared Toussaint as governor for life, with the ability to personally name his successor. As governor for life, Toussaint had the sole enumerated authority to sign and promulgate all laws, to oversee all administrative and military appointments, to collect and to use taxes, to enforce policies regarding labor and trade, and to censor any outside publications that had subversive potential. It was to the French army officer Charles Humbert Marie Vincent that fell the unfortunate task of delivering the new constitution to France to present it to Napoleon. Vincent warned Toussaint that he would view it as being tantamount to a declaration of independence. While the first article of the Constitution did state that Saint-Domingue would remain part of the French Empire, it did not in any way provide the metropolitan government with any role in the colony's administration. There would be no representative present to check Toussaint's power. The Constitution gave Governor Louverture the responsibility to correspond directly with the metropolitan government. Vincent begged Toussaint to reconsider his action, saying that he could not get away with withdrawing from France the right to govern Saint-Domingue. But Toussaint would not be so easily swayed. He put his foot down and sent Vincent on his way. Vincent did not give up trying to convince Toussaint that he was making a mistake. As he stayed in Philadelphia, awaiting the ship that would bring him to France, 
he wrote to Toussaint one last time, warning him. Monsant's concerns were entirely justified. He arrived in France in October 1801 to find, much to his despair, that preparations were already underway for a French invasion of Saint-Domingue. Napoleon Bonaparte, Consul of France, and Toussaint Louverture, Consul of Saint-Domingue, were perhaps destined to clash with one another. While some historians ascribe more complex economic and social rationales to explain the impending conflict between the two men, others tend to interpret it as a simple power struggle between two of the largest personalities of the French Revolutionary period. Their relationship hadn't always been so antagonistic. It is worth remembering that Napoleon reaffirmed Toussaint's authority as governor-in-chief of Saint-Domingue, and thereby assisted him in his war with André Rigaud. Napoleon's opinion of Toussaint soured upon learning of his annexation of Spanish Santo Domingo. Although Toussaint was well within his rights to do this, Napoleon had not authorized it, and therefore he perceived it as a slight towards his authority. For some time afterwards, Napoleon had been lobbied by members of his government to take some form of action against Toussaint, claiming that he was rebelling against French authority. Napoleon was already fairly suspicious of Toussaint's true motives, and upon receiving a copy of his constitution of 1801, he reportedly became indignant. He immediately gave orders to expedite the preparations that were already being made for the expedition to Saint-Domingue. Fonsant did his very best to dissuade Napoleon from this course of action. He attempted to argue that the constitution of 1801 was not, in fact, tantamount to treason, to which Napoleon rebutted that Toussaint was nothing more than a British puppet. Vincent defended Toussaint against this scurrilous charge quite eloquently, quote, At the head of so many resources is a man the most active and tireless of whom one can possibly have any idea. It is the strictest truth to say that he is everywhere, and ab above all, in that spot where a sound judgment and danger make it essential for him to be. His great sobriety, the faculty accorded to him alone, of never taking a rest, the advantages he enjoys of being able to start at once with the work of office after wearisome journeys, of replying to a hundred letters a day and tiring out his secretaries, more than that, the art of tantalizing and confusing everybody, even to deceit, all this makes him a man so superior to all around him that respect and submission reach the limits of fanaticism in a vast number of heads. He has imposed on his brothers in Saint-Domingue a power without bounds. He is the absolute master of the island, and nothing can counteract his wishes, whatever they may be, although some distinguished men, but very few blacks among them, know what his plans are and view them with great fear." End quote. But this time Napoleon would hear none of it. He cursed Toussaint's name, calling him nothing more than a rebellious slave. He accused Vincent of cowardice, and C.L.R. James claims that he was so angry at Monsant that he had him exiled to the island of Elba. But did it have to end this way? Napoleon was a pragmatic man. Even as late as November 1801, as preparations were beginning their final stages, Napoleon was still considering an alternative. The ongoing war with Britain made the prospect of shipping an expeditionary force across the Atlantic to be a risky one. Peace negotiations with Great Britain had been underway since the summer of that year, but they were slow going. In the event that he was forced to delay the expedition for much longer, he strongly considered the possibility that he might have to call it off, and simply recognize Toussaint's authority so as to ally with him against the British. It might have been very much in France's best interest to do this. 
Sure, they stood to lose their direct control over the colony, and potentially they would miss out on some of the massive revenue that it was capable of generating. On the other hand, Napoleon recognized the fact that free labor was potentially more productive than slavery. Rather than having to face off against Toussaint and his formidable army, the French could ally with them against the British, just as supporting the project of abolition and emancipation had, in 1794, saved the French Republican cause in Saint-Domingue, France could once more lend its support to this project and wield it as a powerful weapon in its struggle against Great Britain. France could turn the armies of Toussaint against their enemies in the Caribbean and throughout the Americas. In fact, no other person than General Aduville himself had concocted a similar scheme back in 1796 when he proposed using the armies of Saint-Domingue to invade the neighboring British colony of Jamaica, although his deposition by Toussaint stopped the scheme dead in its tracks. Napoleon's foreign minister, Charles-Maurice de talleyrand Perigord, was a proponent of such a strategy. He wrote to Napoleon, quote, If a new power were to be constituted and recognized in Saint-Domingue, the scepter of the new world would sooner or later fall directly into France's hands. The consequences for Britain would be incalculable, end quote. Talleyrand envisioned Toussaint Louverture leading his armies in a conquest of British holdings in the Caribbean, potentially going on to take over Spanish colonies in America, and perhaps even growing powerful enough to take on the United States. The prospect of dealing such a blow to France's most powerful adversary must have been tantalizing to Napoleon. However, a preliminary peace agreement between France and Britain was drawn up in September, and negotiations for a final treaty were to begin a month later. With peace having returned to the international stage and Britain being out of the picture, Talleyrand's proposal was rendered obsolete. Once again, it is difficult to divine Napoleon's exact thoughts on the matter. Was it possible that Napoleon's pragmatism could have overcome his fury at Toussaint's perceived defiance? For what it's worth, Napoleon would live to regret his decision. On his deathbed in exile, he reportedly expressed his feelings that he should have recognized Toussaint and allied with him, instead of sending an army against him. For the time being, however, Napoleon was determined to send the aforementioned army against Toussaint. He immediately changed up the leadership of the Saint-Domingue expedition, putting in charge Charles-Victor-Emmanuel Leclerc. Leclerc and Napoleon had been close for quite some time. In fact, they were brothers-in-law. They had first met during the Siege of Toulon in 1793, where Napoleon had first won fame. He then accompanied Napoleon on his campaign in Italy. During that time, he met and later married Napoleon's sister, Pauline. Leclerc then went on to assist his new brother-in-law during the coup of Brumaire that brought him to power. Leclerc had become one of Napoleon's most trusted generals, and so it was to him that this difficult assignment fell. Napoleon issued detailed instructions to Leclerc as to how exactly he was to depose Toussaint. Leclerc was to first make his landing at Spanish Santo Domingo and rally support among the Spanish colonists who remained there. Once that had been accomplished, he was to cross the border onto the French side of the island and incite the free people of color to rise up against Toussaint's regime. He would be assisted in this effort by André Vergot and Alexandre Pétion, the general who had defected from Toussaint's army and held the town of Jacmel for five months. Napoleon hoped that these rebellions would put enough pressure on Toussaint that would force him to open negotiations. If Toussaint and his generals agreed to surrender their authority to Leclerc, they would be offered a comfortable life in exile in France. 
if they did not comply, they were to be declared traitors to the Republic and were to be eliminated with extreme prejudice. The top priority for Leclerc was the liquidation of the black officer class. In a coordinated effort, anyone who had ever held a military command under Toussaint's regime, quote, no matter of their color, whatever their habits, their patriotism, or their services rendered to the Republic, end quote, were to be arrested and deported. Napoleon reportedly ordered Leclerc to, quote, not leave a single epaulette on the shoulder of any black in that colony, end quote. But once Toussaint and his generals had been dealt with, what was to be the fate of Saint-Domingue? A far more pointed question is, what were the plans of the French regarding slavery? Was Napoleon planning on restoring slavery from the outset of the expedition? These are very difficult questions to answer, and historians are divided on the subject. In his initial instructions to General Leclerc, Napoleon wrote the following, quote, My policy is to govern men in the way that most of them wish to be governed, as it is the best way to recognize the sovereignty of a people. It was by making myself Catholic that I ended the war in the Vendée, in making myself a Muslim that I established myself in Egypt. Were I to govern a Jewish people, I would rebuild the Temple of Solomon. And so I will speak liberty in the free portion of Saint-Domingue, and even in the enslaved portion of Saint-Domingue, the Spanish portion, I will preserve the right to soften and limit slavery where I maintain it, and to reestablish order and discipline where I maintain liberty." End quote. This speaks to the fact that Napoleon's chief objective, at least at first, was not necessarily the restoration of slavery, but the deposition of Toussaint, the liquidation of his power base, and the restoration of order and of metropolitan authority in the colony. His infamous decision to reinstate slavery came much later, in 1802, for reasons that we will discuss later. There remained one major barrier to the expedition, however, and that was once again the Kingdom of Great Britain. As mentioned previously, an initial peace agreement had been drawn up in late September 1801, but a final peace treaty had yet to be concluded. Britain and France technically remained in a state of war. It would be impossible for the expeditionary force to reach Saint-Domingue without the cooperation, or at the very least the neutrality of the British. In order to win them over, Napoleon waged a propaganda campaign. He sought to portray the expedition as a, quote, crusade of civilized people of the West against the black barbarism that is on the rise in the Americas, end quote. He had Foreign Minister Talleyrand take a private correspondence with the British government. In these letters, Talleyrand made the case that the objectives of the expedition were in the mutual interests of both countries, as the existence of an independent black republic posed an existential threat to the European colonial system as a whole. The British, in spite of their previous dealings with Toussaint, concurred. The Royal Navy agreed to stand down, and allowed the French fleet passage across the Atlantic. Meanwhile, in Saint-Domingue, a rebellion broke out in October 1801 that cast a pall over the final days of Toussaint's rule. The ringleader of this revolt was none other than Moise, Toussaint's adoptive nephew and one of his most popular and closely trusted generals. Moise was, just as Toussaint, from the Breda plantation, and he had been by his side from the earliest days of the slave revolt. C.L.R. James described Moise as, quote, a bonny lad, a dashing soldier fond of women, the most popular soldier in the army, beloved by the blacks of the north for his ardent championship of them against the whites, end quote. As James suggested, Moise had a deep and abiding hatred of the whites, much more than Toussaint's other generals. Upon the expulsion of General Aduville in 1798, 
Moise was quoted as saying the following to his white secretary, quote, The French in this land are no good, and they are the only ones in our way. If it were in my power, I would soon be rid of them. You have to finish what you start. I shall only love them when they give me back the eye that they took from me in battle, end quote. It has been suggested that the origins of Moise's animus towards the whites was the fact that he, while he was a slave, was treated far more roughly than Toussaint or Dessalines. Moise had been appointed by Toussaint as the agricultural inspector of the northern province, which is to say that he was in charge of enforcing Toussaint's labor laws. Moise found his task to be nearly impossible. He believed that Toussaint's labor laws were far too draconian, too restrictive of the freedom that the former slaves had won for themselves. Most egregious of all, many plantation laborers were working under their former white masters. This, to Moise, was simply unacceptable. And what was it all for? To grow cash crops to appease the whites back in France. Moise therefore refused to enforce the labor laws to the full extent the Toussaint desired. Agricultural productivity in the northern province suffered as a result. When Toussaint criticized him for this, Moise responded, quote, In spite of my uncle's orders, I cannot resolve myself to become the executioner of my own race. End quote. On October 22nd, a revolt broke out across the northern plain, specifically in the very same districts where the slave revolt of 1791 had begun. This rebellion was evidently well-planned, as the rebels chose to stage their uprising on a night that Toussaint was away from his stronghold of Le Cap, attending the wedding of Dessalines in the western province. Agricultural laborers across the northern plain carried out a massacre of any whites they came across, killing about 300 in the process. The revolt would have seized Le Cap itself had it not been for the timely action of the commander of the city's garrison, Henri Christophe, who caught wind of the conspiracy and suppressed it before it could come to fruition. Toussaint responded as quickly as possible, dispatching the newlywed Dessalines northward to crush the rebellion with his characteristic brutality. Dessalines took no prisoners. When he came across a plantation where any white person had been killed, Dessalines had this entire workforce summarily executed. Henri Christophe handled matters more delicately, and he was able to convince the rebellious laborers who surrounded the city to return to their plantations. Toussaint instantly suspected Moise of instigating this rebellion. He summoned his adoptive nephew before him and demanded that he explain himself. Moise denied the accusation that he was the ringleader of the conspiracy, though the fact that he did not take vigorous action to suppress it after it did break out had convinced Toussaint of his guilt. In late November 1801, Moise, along with those associated with him, secretaries, junior officers, etc., were all executed. The sources indicate that Moise died bravely, staring down the firing squad and ordering them to open fire on him. The extent of Moise's guilt is yet another matter of historical controversy. Toussaint had Moise executed without trial, and he left behind no documents that might have shed any light on the situation. Regardless of whether he had played an active role in organizing the uprising, the important thing was that the rebels believed that Moise was on their side. The rebels in some districts used rallying cries of, Moise is with us, long live Moise. Their unstated objective was to overthrow Toussaint and install his nephew in his place. They were perhaps motivated by the belief that Toussaint not only no longer represented their interests, but that he was preparing to go so far as to reinstate slavery. They had been forced to return to slave-like labor conditions by Toussaint. They might have also heard of Toussaint's scheme to combat the labor shortage by purchasing slaves from Africa, and, while technically freeing them, also putting them to work on the plantations. 
Add to that Toussaint's friendly disposition towards the former white masters, and the ex-slaves would have had ample reason to believe the rumors that were circulating about Toussaint's ultimate goals. The laboring masses had come to believe that Moïse better represented their interests. So ultimately, whether Moïse was directly involved in the uprising or not was immaterial. It was a manifestation of the discontent of the laboring masses against Toussaint's regime. Toussaint was clearly shaken by the betrayal of one of his closest confidants. Those close to him said that they had never seen the man in such a state of constant agitation and paranoia. The period immediately following Moïse's rebellion saw Toussaint's most authoritarian tendencies rise to the surface. On November 25th, he issued a stern proclamation in which he derided the memory of Moïse and reprimanded his citizens. Quote, Since the revolution, I have done everything in my power to bring back happiness to my country and ensure the freedom of my fellow citizens. Forced to fight the interior and exterior enemies of the French Republic, I have made war with courage, honor, and loyalty. I have always and energetically urged our soldiers' subordination, discipline, and obedience, without which there can be no army. It is created to protect freedom, the security of persons and property, and all its members must never lose sight of its honorable purpose. Officers must set a good example as a lesson to their men. Such is the language I used with General Moïse for ten years in all of our conversations. These are the principles and feelings that I put into a thousand of my letters. At every opportunity, I sought to explain to him the holy maxims of our faith, and prove that man is nothing without the power and the will of God. Instead of listening to the advice of a father, and obeying the orders of a leader dedicated to the well-being of the colony, he wanted only to be ruled by his passions and his fatal inclinations. He has met with a wretched end. end quote. Toussaint went on in this decree to chide the citizenry at large, placing the blame for the insurrection on a lack of moral values, and exclaiming, quote, It is true that Moïse was the driving force behind the recent conspiracy, but he never would have been able to carry out his dastardly enterprise without assistance such as these. End quote. Toussaint ended the proclamation by decreeing that any individual convicted of making seditious comments would be tried by a military tribunal and punished as the law prescribes. Toussaint believed the root cause of Moïse's rebellion was an endemic libertinage amongst the people. He is quoted as saying that, quote, Idleness is the source of all disorders. Perverse men have declared that liberty is the right to remain idle, to do bad with impunity, to disdain laws, and to follow only their whims, end quote. In order to combat this issue, Toussaint placed even more stringent restrictions on the freedom of plantation workers. He even went so far as to threaten administrators and officers who, like Moïse, failed to enforce these laws to a satisfactory degree with execution. A passport system was introduced that severely restricted even internal travel within Saint-Domingue. Anyone without the proper documentation was liable to be imprisoned or deported. To Toussaint's credit, however, authors sympathetic to him are very keen to point out that these authoritarian measures produced results. In 1801, coffee exports had risen to two-thirds of their level in, in 1789, just one year before the outbreak of revolution. Sugar exports were at one-third of their level in the same year. Toussaint's aim in building up the plantation economy was always the appeasement of the metropolitan government, but Toussaint was not naive. He knew that the threat of invasion from France was ever-present. Not once did he let his guard down. It was his constant fear of French intervention that motivated his decision to defy Consul Bonaparte's orders and to annex Spanish Santo Domingo. Toussaint drilled his army relentlessly and sought to establish the same level of discipline on the plantations. 
he continually drew up new recruits for the army, to the point where he had almost 30,000 regular troops and an additional 10,000 local militiamen by early 1802. To arm these men, he purchased some 30,000 firearms from American merchants. While reviewing his troops, he would occasionally take a rifle from one of the men, raise it aloft, and proclaim, quote, Here is your liberty, end quote. In order to prepare for an invasion, he took care to build up fortifications in strategic areas, and he hid caches of weapons and ammunition throughout the countryside. If the French were truly audacious enough to attempt to reestablish slavery, Toussaint made sure that they would bleed for every inch of territory. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the expeditionary force under General Leclerc was entering its final stages of preparation. Leclerc's army constituted the largest expeditionary force dispatched by France in its entire history up to this point. It consisted of 50 ships, carrying 22,000 soldiers and an additional 20,000 sailors. Over the course of the expedition, they would be joined by an additional 40,000 soldiers. Upon seeing the sails of the Armada on the horizon, Toussaint was quoted as saying that, quote, all of France has come to Saint-Domingue, end quote. These soldiers were the elite, veterans of France's various wars in the Old World, the Vendée, the Rhine, Italy, Egypt. These men had seen it all. One contemporary observer said of the army, quote, the army of Leclerc was composed of an infinite number of soldiers with great talent, good strategists, great tacticians, officers of engineers and artillery, all well-educated and very resourceful, end quote. Few of these men could have any idea of the horrible fates that awaited them in Saint-Domingue. Unusually strong winds off the coast of France delayed the expedition's departure from the port city of Brest for several weeks. The French Armada finally departed on December 14, 1801, and the first of the French forces made landfall in eastern Santo Domingo on January 29th of the following year. The War of Haitian Independence had begun. It would take two years and tens of thousands of casualties on both sides for it to be brought to an end. But to hear this next part of the story, you'll have to tune in again in two weeks for the next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything of else of the like, you can always email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to which can be found in the episode description. Also in this episode's description will be links to the eBay store and the Patreon. If you like the show and would like to help keep it running, please consider supporting the show financially in either of these two ways. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off. <laughs>